Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesdays at 2 with the Center Vision Leadership Foundation. My name is Todd Greer. I'm the Executive Director of Center Vision and we are so thrilled to have you join us today for our great and awesome opportunity to talk with David Burkus, author of The Myths of Creativity. Before we get to David, want to go through some of the general programming information that's important for you as you tune in to the Center Vision Leadership Channel. It's important to remember that every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, we host our nonprofit chat. You can follow that on Twitter, hashtag nonprofit chat. You can go to tweetchat.com and you can follow it there, twubs.com, any of those sites, whatever your best way to curate the uh, discussion is. We invite you to join in as we'll be continuing our conversation today about some of the creativity myths that we find rampant in nonprofit organizations. Also want to remind you that our next issue of Nonprofit Performance Magazine launches December 1st. Our guest today, David Burkus, is one of our contributors for that magazine. He's got a great article on busting myths and we're excited to have him as part of that. As always, if you ever have any questions that we can answer at Center Vision and Leadership, please, please feel free to email us and we'll get right back to you as soon as possible. If for any reason you've missed any of the previous Hangouts, you can find those on our website through the Hangouts archived events. Without further ado, I am so excited to have in with me a good friend, a great leader, a man who is doing some amazing things in the world of innovation and creativity, a guy who is known for strategy and leadership, David Burkus, welcome. Well, thank you, Todd. You make me sound way cooler than I than I really am. So thank you for that. That's fun. Well, that's what we get paid the big bucks here for, David. I guess. I guess. I mean, you literally. There's like, you know, my mom, and then the way you made me sound. So there you go. Absolutely, folks. If you don't know David already, today is going to be an opportunity to get to know who David is. David is is really speaking internationally at this point. He's going all across the world. In fact, I think you've got a a visit to Kuwait City. Is that right? I do. I'm in Kuwait City uh, in like 16 days. So. Okay, so he's he's going all around the world and he's talking about something that I think is extremely important in the nonprofit world. David is the author of The Myths of Creativity. It's a fantastic book and today we're going to be going through some of those myths and talking about how do we bust those myths within the nonprofit world. David, where does this idea come from? So, um, you know, and this is funny for, for you to ask me this because, you know, Todd and I were in graduate school together. And, uh, and Todd, you know the pain that happens if you start out with a research question and you don't find what you were looking for. And that's kind of what happened in this case. So the, this book came out of my uh, graduate school research. And what I was trying to find was what is it about leaders of outstandingly creative organizations, right, across the spectrum. So businesses right, outstandingly creative companies like Apple and Google or more sort of arts-oriented companies like Pixar or even nonprofits that have a, a creative take like a Charity Water, et cetera, right? What, what is it that makes these leaders, um, how do they affect the organization in such a way that makes it creative? And I got really, really uh, depressed at one point because I couldn't find the answer. Like I looked in all of the quantitative measurable stuff and when you scale back to the initial, like when the organization was founded, you really find that everybody's building with the same raw material, right? Now it's obvious that Google has some of the smartest minds in the world sort of now, but when you know when 
when the two founders were just looking to build a team on this unproven thing, you don't have the same resources for recruiting talent and all that sort of stuff that you do now. And that's what I wanted to figure out, was if you go back to the beginning, what do you do? And so uh, I, could, I couldn't really find it. There wasn't really a logical sort of explanation, resources or measurement-wise for it. And so I, I went back and looked into a lot of the qualitative research. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that the people I interviewed who you would put in that sort of presumably creative category, and the, for lack of a better term, non-creatives, or the people who weren't tapping into their creativity, they actually talked about the creativity innovation, innovation dynamic differently, right? So you would have people from the design space talk about it's all part of the process, right? And they would talk about trust the process, and they would have these different tools and techniques and tactics that were different than the presumably non-creative people who would, if they had a great idea, would talk about how it just came to them, right? Or that they felt inspired, right? Or they would talk about how somebody was just naturally sort of creative, right? And so this, this is where you can see, Todd, I'm seeing you nod because you read the book, this is where this idea of the myths came from, right? Myths, if you think back to even ancient myths or current myths, myths are really tempting uh, half-truths, right? They're, they're not true, but they're an attempt to explain something mysterious, something we don't fully understand. We see a phenomenon in the world, and we don't fully understand why it occurs that way, so we create a myth. So in the case of like you know ancient myths that we think about, we think about creation myths and all of that sort of stuff that different cultures had, or or the sun being connected to you know I mean actually here's an here's an interesting one the idea that the sun rises and sets we still use that terminology even though everybody knows we just spin around and around right so it's the same thing with creativity right we go back the most ancient of the myths are sort of the ancient Greeks thinking about the the muses the, the divine sisters that visited mortals and gave them ideas and I don't know actually. I used to say I don't know anybody. I, get, I went on a speaking gig once and I met one person who claimed that they really do believe in muses. So beyond that one weird, crazy person, no offense if you're listening, um, beyond that, I've never encountered anyone who still believes in the muses. But I encounter people every single day that use phraseologies, use uh, turns of phrase that signify it. So they'll say things like, I just need to feel inspired. Inspired actually comes from the Greek meaning to be breathed upon, right? Or they'll say of an idea, it just came to me. Well, where was it before? Right? It, it just came to me implies that it was somewhere else and somebody brought it to you. That's not the type of thinking that these consistently, prolifically creative people are, are using. And so the aim of the book is to boil down where are the faulty attempts to explain this mysterious thing of creativity? Where are the myths? And then where is the actual research? We have over 50 years of research on creativity and innovation or what causes innovation to happen inside of companies. And in most cases, this, this mythological language is not actually in line with the research. And what's really interesting is the prolifically creative companies, whether they know about the research or not, are usually much more in line with the research than the myth. So there's the idea for the book, right? If we want to get people to be more creative, yeah, I can teach you a brainstorming technique or that kind of stuff. But more importantly, I need to get at your head and how you're perceiving creativity, the story that you're telling, and I need to rewrite that story. That's fantastic, David. I think that's one of the key reasons why this conversation is so important to nonprofits. I, I think we still live, as you mentioned, we still live in a world in which we're we're living in in myths that that we know are not true, and yet we still allow them to to run rampant in our organizations. And I think that idea of a creative mythology, as, as chapter one is entitled in your book, is so apparent in, in many organizations. We we think about this world in which we're just not creative and, and we're waiting for something to come to us and and it 
it really hampers us. It hampers growth in organizations. And one of the next pieces that you really point to, and, and I know I'm going to probably uh, jump around a little bit within the book, if, if you're familiar with it, uh, if you've read it, you, you talk about the breed myth. And, and I think this is probably the thing that, to me, sticks out the most because we even use terms like these are our creatives or well that's that person is creative and I'm not what does that do to us in an organization particularly thinking about nonprofits yeah so I mean the breed myth is exactly that the, the breed myth is this idea that there is some genetic or personality based explanation for why people are more creative than others and and I don't want to fully dismiss the role of genetics in anything but the best way to think of it is that in all of the research, nature has yet to remove nurture from the table, right? In other words, there is something beyond just your genes. And in, I think in creativity, the majority of our creative expression, the majority of our creative practice is explained not by your genetic code or not by your personality or anything that you're sort of born with. We're all born with, and if you've ever, if you have kids or you've ever interacted with kids under the age of about five, you know that every single one of them, regardless of their genetics, is incredibly creative, right? So what's going on there? And because later in life we use terms exactly like that. Oh, he or she is so creative. They're a creative, right? Or they were just naturally given, you know, this creative ability, which I think is really damaging for two reasons. The first, to be totally honest, is it's kind of offensive, because if you think about the people who have worked really hard to refine their creative ability in any in any space, right? When you say someone is naturally talented in any endeavor, you're dismissing all of the work they put into it, right? Even if genetics play a role, like the, the example I use is not a creativity one, but if you think about the NBA, right? Yeah, genetics play a role in making sure that you're over like 6'5". There's still a ton of work to be done, right? So to say somebody is a natural sort of athlete like that, yeah, okay, so genetics might have made them naturally tall. They still chose to do that, right, to take those genes and actually do something about it. And so for one, like you're being offensive to the creatives that the creatives you have or the creatives you're seeking work because you're you're discounting all of the work that they put into it, right? But the other thing is you're letting yourself off the hook. Most of the time when I hear people say he or she is just so naturally creative, they're saying it in a way where they imply that and I'm not and therefore it's their job, not mine, right? I see this all the time. I mean, I teach in a college of business. And we have all of these different majors, and the marketing majors will always say they're creative. The accounting majors never will, because you know, I mean, we don't need creative accountants and finance people. But that's not actually true, right? Innovation Intuit is one of the most innovative companies I've ever studied, right? And they're an account; they make financial and accounting software, right? So this idea that uh, certain fields, certain uh, people, certain job roles are the ones that need creativity and others are presumably not, is really damaging because if the more you propagate it, the more the people who aren't in those roles feel like there's no point. But further, right, I don't know of any organization that doesn't need as many good ideas as it can get, whether or not they come from that field. And so the most innovative organizations are the ones that allow creative ideas to be generated anywhere, not just with the ad or marketing team, not just with a certain sort of traditionally creative roles. Great ideas can come from anywhere, and so we need a radar that sees them from anywhere that they're coming from. That's a great point. I think that's something that's so uh, important to to each of us to see this. And and I want to come back into uh, to chapter one. You presented some research that was uh, out of Harvard, uh, Harvard uh, Business School, and I thought this was really intriguing. It was about four components that really lend to creativity. And I want to just uh, enumerate those because I think for each person that's listening, that's watching this discussion, it's important for you to think about how these impact you 
in your organization. You, you list, based upon the research, these are the four things that truly impact creativity. You say they are domain-relevant skills, creativity-relevant processes, task motivation, and the surrounding social environment. And David, I want to point to, to that last one because I think that's one of those pieces that we tend to we, we tend to allow that to be the creatives because they're in these socially creative or socially supportive environments. You know, you think about an art classroom. An art classroom tends to look different, right, than a, a, an accounting classroom, right? Yeah. You totally. know, those are the kinds of things that we do. Um, I know I do a lot of uh, conversations with folks in um, in the entrepreneurial realm, even, uh, and we talk about co-working spaces, and we talk about uh, business incubators and accelerators, and we think about what does the space look like, and even I, I think about the things that that are around me right now. I, I'm I am no genius of my own, but doggone it, you look behind me and I see a ton of geniuses. I see people whose uh, thoughts and information I, I'm able to draw upon. How often do you think we, we just forget that social environment piece, David? So I, I think I think there's two things that we do sort of uh, in, in error, right? So the first is that, that what you're referring to, let me back up, is, is the Confidential Model of Creativity by Teresa Mobile. She's a brilliant researcher and a, and a great human being. Um, and I think we tend to focus too much, exactly what you said, on the idea of having domain-relevant skills and motivation and creative thinking techniques. The social environment is incredibly important because even if you have the other three, and you're plugged into a social environment that doesn't support creativity, you'll eventually learn it's easiest just to keep your mouth shut, right? And so part of that is that environment. Like, there's, there's tons of research out there that shows that we don't understand the impact of our environment on us, right? Whether it's the, the room, right? So there's studies that show that certain colors stimulate divergent thinking, right? So you should paint your walls of a brainstorming room certain colors, right? And that and that's one tier, right? But the other tier is the broader sort of the the so the true social environment, how people are interacting with each other. And this is presumably even more important because you can have a cool looking room, but if you have a group of people in there who aren't supporting uh, the freewheeling of ideas or limited risk taking or the idea of delaying judgment, right? Or accepting that any creative idea is an invitation to judgment, and so we need to, to help that person along, suspend judgment, um, suspend self-monitoring behavior, all of that sort of stuff to get the creativity out. That's what we really mean when we talk about social environment. Is, is yes, what you surround yourself with, the stimuli that you surround yourself with is really important, but the people that you're interacting with. And this is really important because this is where leaders come into play, right? Ultimately, when you, when you boil it all down, leaders have sort of two levers that they can pull, right? They can set structure and set environment and build systems, and they can hire people. Right? And this is where the social environment comes into play in, in both levers. Right? If you're not building a social environment that's supportive of creativity, but it also if you're not bringing in people who get that, right? who get that no idea is a bad idea during brainstorming, even though some ideas are terrible, yes, I'll give you that, but there's a limited time where we need to make sure we suspend that. So if you're not doing sort of both of those things, you're not building that social environment that supports creativity. And even if you bring in the smartest people in the world, the most creative people in the world, and you plug them into that really narrow-minded, uh, unsupportive social environment, it doesn't take long for them to figure out that their ideas aren't welcome. Mm. David, I know in a previous conversation, you and I have talked about uh, the importance of a structured devil's advocate. and You, you talked uh, at length at that time about the history within the Roman Catholic Church, how that was a, a rotated position for individuals to hold in order to to challenge the status quo, to be able to bring things up. 
I think that's such an interesting thing in light of what you're just declaring here is the fact that so much of what we do is about creating structure and creating space for people to to challenge status quo, to raise issues, to raise questions. Why do you think this doesn't happen in organizations? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of different reasons, I think. So the, the predominant is I think we suffer from this. I call it the cohesive myth, but I think we suffer from this idea that the best decisions are always made by consensus, right? And at the same time, we, we tell stories about, like, the Abilene paradox, right? Or jokes about how, like, a camel is a horse made by committee. So we, we already know, already clued into the idea that full consensus ruins certain parts of ideas. But we look at, like, incredibly, and, you know, we do exactly what, what sort of you were just talking about with co-working spaces and fun places to work, pool tables, right? It's not casual Friday, it's casual every day. And we look at those places and we feel like, oh, that must be a really fun place to work. And to in our minds, we then think like, okay, fun also equals total cohesion, everybody gets along, and everybody is just having fun as they work to it. No, the, the most creative companies are ones that really understand the role that conflict and a lack of cohesion actually plays in refining ideas. Right? If no one in your organization is arguing over the merits of an idea, then either no one is having good enough ideas or all of your ideas will go untested, and when they get out into the world, will probably bomb. Because no one has an important piece. You, you mentioned even before, a leader has two roles, and one of those roles is hiring people. And I think if we're simply hiring people who validate our responses, then there's no point for them. Right? Well, this, this, yeah, and this is where it gets really awful, right? Because, I mean, most most companies, even though we know the research, now we're getting more HR oriented than creativity. But this is important. Uh, most companies, even though we know the research on how terrible they are, use unstructured interviews to decide, right? And the idea that you should be asking when you're hiring someone, whether it's you know for a creative role, well, everybody's going to be in a creative role after after you finish listening to us today. Absolutely. But you're trying to answer the question, is this person going to bring more value to my organization than what it costs to hire them, right? But that's not the question people ask in an unstructured interview, right? What's the question they ask? Do I like this person? Could I see myself working with this person? None of those things are relevant, right? Mm -hmm. None of them are relevant to, and, and what's even worse is that if you're the leader, who do you like? Well, decades of research support that we like people who look like us and who act like us and who think like us. And so all we get is an organization of us, right? Um, the example that I'd love to use is, is actually for marriage counseling, right? When two, when, a spouse, when two spouses fight and they go see a marriage counselor, the first thing the marriage counselor says is like, good, because if you agreed all of the time, one of you would be unnecessary. Now let's learn how to fight productively. And that's what we need to do inside of organizations. We need to build diverse perspectives that are going to fight over ideas and then teach them systems to fight effectively without it devolving into personal. And that's kind of where you were going with this devil's advocate idea. It was something the Catholic Church invented to ensure that people were fighting over it. The idea was that as people were on the verge of being canonized as saints, right? so we're making this whole case that this person deserves to be a saint. Just like in a court of law today, the idea was we need a prosecutor and a defender. Right? And so we make the case for why this person should be a saint. But one other person takes on the duty of being the devil's advocate, or the other term for it was the defender of the faith, which I think is really telling. Right? Uh -huh. I live in the buckle of the Bible Belt where you're not supposed to say devil's advocate, but if you know the history of it, you know that it actually was sort of the most solemn role, defender of the faith. And the idea is this person presents all of the reasons why the, the particular priest or, or whomever should not be a saint. And unless we know all of those reasons, we're not making an informed decision. Unless we're confronted with people 
and ideas that challenge our thinking, we're not making a fully informed decision. If everybody always agrees with you, you're, you're probably wrong, and even worse, your people are afraid to tell you you're wrong. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think uh, for, for many of the nonprofits that are, are part of our network, that's one of the things that's real for them. I and mean, when we talk about creativity, and it seems like this piece that's maybe almost nebulous and out there, and how do we put our hands on it? And I think these are, are concrete examples for us and our organizations. It, it takes creating structure. I mean, creativity, again, if, if we're busting that myth of the, uh, the creative mythology here, it, it doesn't come from, you know, just out there coming into us. It comes from setting up an environment in which we can have real discussion, we can have productive conflict, we can engage in real thoughtful interactions, and we're able to see things that, that challenge the status quo. So this is, this is really insightful. David, I'm going to kind of change gears a little bit here. One of the things that I recognize so much, and this is a great challenge for a lot of nonprofits, we talk about scarcity thinking. You, uh, you utilize in the text, you talk about the constraints myth. I mean, in many ways, we're talking about the same apple just from different sides. What is the constraints myth, and how does something like that impact nonprofits? Yeah, I mean, I, this is something I see really prevalent in nonprofits because the constraints myth is essentially this weird belief that your constraints are limiting your ability to be creative, right? That if only we had more resources or more people or more time or less restrictions, right, then we could fully explore our creativity. And that's potentially true when it comes to coming up with ideas. But most of the research supports the idea that when you're faced with a totally unregulated, unconstrained environment, you freeze. Right? If, if I give you a blank piece of paper and I say draw me a picture, you might draw, you will eventually draw a picture, you, but you'll freeze. Right? If I give you a half-filled in picture, if I give you a piece of paper that has just two lines like uh, the beginning of a box, you don't have to draw a box, you can draw whatever you want, and I say complete the picture, you're actually going to come up with more original and better quality ways to, to complete the picture. Right? Most people. I mean, everybody's just going to draw a box around it and say, some, there's always one in, in every test that just tries to be done as quickly as possible. But for the most part, creativity actually thrives under constraints. The reason is that constraints actually help us understand the problem. Right? The parallels between creative thinking as a process and problem solving as a process, they're pretty much the same. Right? Creative thinking solves problems. Right? And constraints help us understand those problems. Right? A far worse thing is to generate all sorts of unconstrained ideas and then find out later that we can't implement any of them. Mm -hmm. It's far better to begin the, the process of solving a problem by researching what our constraints are, understanding them, because then we have our head around the problem. Right? What I think is really interesting is that we've done you know, micro level in the, in the lab research on how our brains work, and our brains are actually able to come up with more and better solutions when they're faced with an obstacle. So we'll give people sort of an experience or a, a problem where they actually aren't able to solve it, right? And they'll face that resistance of not being able to solve it. Then we'll switch and give them a creative thinking task. And some and a control group, we won't give them that problem. We'll give them a problem they can solve. Then we'll give them the same creative thinking task. The people who face the obstacle approach the other problem more motivated and more able to come up with creative thinking ideas. So when you're thinking about constraints in a nonprofit, you know, we all use, yeah, if we could get more donors, if we could get more money per donation, then we could solve all of our problems. Well, no, you couldn't. What you need to do is figure out like, inside the context, the construct of what we're facing right now, 
what options do we have available to us? And, and fully feel the weight of all of those constraints because they help you understand the problem, but they'll also more motivate you to solve it. It's a myth that the, the most creative companies have no restraints. The most creative companies are the ones that figure out what all of the constraints are first and then act inside of it. And, you know, we do this myth all the time because we always tell people we equate creative thinking with thinking outside the box. And I hate that. I loathe that metaphor. Right? Because the most creative ideas are inside the box. You've understood the constraints and they're inside. You could argue that they're at the fringes of the box. They're at the corners of the box. Right? But my point is that the most creative ideas, the most useful ideas, are not ones outside the box because you can't implement what's outside the box. The best thinking happens at the fringes of the box. Sure, and it, it may even be using the lid of the box in a way that we've never used it before. You know, the, yeah. Those are the pieces, I think, that, that really get in. It's funny because as you were talking... Uh, a book that I was um, introduced to a couple decades ago, well, probably a decade and a half ago, I was uh, a 19-year-old uh, sophomore in college working in a, a, a small nonprofit, a chamber of commerce in my local hometown. I was working on communications and events, and I remember the constraint myth being something that was hard for me because I was thinking, well, if I only had this, or if I only had this, or if this was available to me, and yet... I was introduced to guerrilla marketing, um, and you're probably, I mean, it's been running for a long time now, but I remember thinking about how they bust that idea open with the idea that it doesn't take a, a ton of money, it doesn't take a lot of staff, it doesn't take a lot of X, Y, or Z in order to make these things happen. It simply takes, you know, flipping the box upside down and looking at, oh, hey, we have a whole lot more present here than we ever thought we did. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and further, like to use this with a corporate example or a nonprofit example, the well-resourced well ones, the ones who aren't doing guerrilla or duct tape marketing, right, the ones who are doing all this, they're actually ones that create some level of distrust because we, we look at them as a bit further away, right? We, we want a personal connection to the companies, the people, nonprofits, what, who we interact with, right? And so, you know, like I think about probably the most well-resourced nonprofit in the United States is probably the United Way. But not a week goes by that there's not some sort of controversy about the United Way, how they're handling the funds, what they're doing, whatever, right? By contrast, you know, if you support one local little nonprofit where you know the director, you know the people who are in it, like, you're, you're more willing to engage in that, right? Which means you're better at listing people to help you, right? But also when that group actually begins to think a bit more creatively about how can we do this, this uh, marketing approach or whatever our ideas are, right, how can we do them? You're, the lack of resources actually helping you make that more creative idea that because you have a closer connection to the community spreads quicker. You know, it would take, to, and sometimes you see the same thing, like the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge is a great example, right? Yes. That's not the United Way. Yeah, it's a national level nonprofit, but they got creative in their thinking, right? And they got personal in their thinking, and it's something that scaled wildly. If the United Way had done the same thing, like every year I get the little flyer that says, if you pay some money, you can wear jeans at work, right? And every year I go, no thanks, I'd rather wear corduroys, right? <laughs> so, no, no point, right? Whereas the Ice Bucket Challenge, I mean, it, it, it grew like wild. Why? Because they had a creative idea, because they were limited in their resources, but they also had a community that was really engaged with them to begin with. So when that idea was, was implemented, it was able to scale quicker because it had a community of support versus the large, well-resourced ones have to actually spend some of their resources just marketing the idea. I mean, again, think back to if the United Way had tried to launch that campaign. I doubt it would have spread as quickly as it did. That's a great point. And, and I, I think that in many ways segues to um, 
the the last myth in in the book and um, something that I, I think is a really intriguing one. It was something that it very much challenged uh, my thinking. Is the mousetrap myth? You talk about the the old adage is if you build a greater mousetrap, then the world will come and basically beat down your door because they want it. I think that's that's something that's so so challenging to nonprofits because so many times we think if I can only come up with this this big idea that's magically going to solve all of the issues that we face because it's going to be my silver bullet and it's right. what is that like do you think for for most nonprofits David yeah i mean i think in a nonprofit context it's possibly even worse because let's face it almost almost Everyone who works for a nonprofit, right? Some university presidents with large endowments aside, almost everybody who works for a nonprofit is sacrificing their sort of salary potential on an open market to work there, right? Whether they're working there for free or just a, a reduced salary than they could get in the in the corporate world, everybody is uh, is volunteering their time to some degree, right? Because they believe in the idea behind the nonprofit, right? Because they've bought into it. And so the idea, the mousetrap myth, you know, that says exactly that. It, 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 we fault, we falsely believe if you if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path through door. And it's frustrating because we volunteered to go work with that nonprofit because we already believed it was a better mousetrap. And so it can be really frustrating when we can't get that idea to scale because we think like, well, I know this is a great idea. I know this is a better mousetrap. Why isn't it scaling? Well, it's not scaling because the whole mousetrap myth. I mean, the whole if you build a better mousetrap thing is is rubbish. Right. If you build a better mousetrap, the world will probably try and beat it down, or worse, it'll just ignore you. Right. And and I think this is this is damaging inside of organizations personally, but it's also damaging for the organization trying to scale. And it's also it's it's actually kind of a little bit you can take a little bit of solace, right? Because the world is filled with metaphorical mousetraps. Right. Kodak invented the digital camera. Xerox invented the personal computer. Right. We have all of these stories of corporations inventing a technology, not seeing its value, not scaling. Right. Igor Stravinsky composed the Rite of Spring. It caused not one, but two riots on its opening night because people hated it so much. Right? The actual mousetrap. Right? We keep saying this word, and I, those of you that are watching, you're thinking wooden board, spring-loaded steel mousetrap, a little bit of free cheese because there's always free cheese in a mousetrap. Right? Although I can tell you the peanut butter works better because it has for the, the mice in our house, so it's been awesome. So use peanut butter. Remember nothing else peanut butter. Um, the, the literal mousetrap that we're all thinking of was invented in 1899. And since then, 400 patent applications a year get submitted to the U.S. Patent Office. People who believe they've invented a better mousetrap. 20 of those have been developed into commercially viable products, but yet we still think about this other one. And by the way, it's not the most effective one in all situations. So why are we doing this? Right? Well, for an idea to be creative, for an idea to be a truly better mousetrap, a disruptive innovation, whether it's a product, service, an idea for a nonprofit, a business model for a new nonprofit, whatever it is, it has to be new and it has to be useful, right? Or novel and original, right? Um, <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily have to be wholly original because that is a myth in and of itself. But it has to be new to that domain, it has to be different, right? And it also has to be valuable. And the problem is that we use valuable, we or excuse me, we use new. We judge that based on whether or not we've ever seen it before. But we judge value with the same question: Have I ever seen this before? And if we have, we're more willing to trust it. And if we haven't, we're less willing to assign it uh, the valuable or useful title. And the research supports that in, in periods of uncertainty, this gets even worse. In times of uncertainty, we'll say we need new ideas to get out of our uncertain situation. But when we're presented with ideas that are new or useful, 
right, will always favor usefulness. And so we'll reject great ideas all of the time because they're new and because they depart from the status quo and we're using the status quo to judge it. So I'll give you a great example from the non nonprofit sector. There's a, there's a wonderful TED Talk by Dan Pallotta, I think is his last name. I'm, I'm going to butcher his last name. Yep. On why it's so hard for nonprofits to raise the funds they need because there's this old status quo idea that everybody's expenses should be less than a certain percentage. And we're used Charity Navigator and that kind of stuff to be judged on, right? When in reality, what Dan showed is that when his nonprofit sort of bucked that trend and presented a new and useful original model, right, they raised more money than they could under the old model. But then they were criticized afterwards because you had people busting up against that model, right? Now, what I think is interesting, as I mentioned it earlier, is you take something like a charity water model where they've said, you know, we're going to take the same lesson from their nonprofit about raising lots of money with lots of fun events, but we're going to have a core sort of board of advisors. They are going to pay our operating expenses, so we're going to stay under that charity of that 80% radar. In reality, they're acting like one, but they show up as another on the metric, right? Now, that wouldn't be possible without learning the lessons of this one, yeah. right? But the truth is there are whole other models out there for nonprofits that you've, that you've never even heard of, that you might be thinking of, et cetera, that when you first present it to the world is going to meet a little bit of resistance because we judge the effectiveness of nonprofit business models, of businesses, of all sorts of things based on all of our prior conceptions, right? Now, if the model is worth it, take heart because we have personal computers, we have digital cameras, we can watch the right of spring or listen to the right of spring. Like The great ideas eventually get implemented, but they always face more resistance than just tried and true old ideas, which, by the way, may not be what we need. Yeah, David, that's a, a great point. I think um, a lot of people have this, and I, it's kind of a blurring together of a lot of the myths here, but they have this myth regarding nonprofits as a whole that you know these nonprofits are charity organizations. And we use that term, and that's such a limiting term. When we think about organizations like the National Football League, as a nonprofit, I mean, you know, these are that's a, a busting of the the nonprofit myth. Here we go. I just added a new one to your book. Here, yeah, yeah. it's not well, exactly I mean, creativity, but technical. The 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 NFL is a, is a different type of nonprofit, and it's not a you know it's not a five hundred one c three. It's a different. But you you get my point. There are people yeah. going. Why in the world are they given the same tax exemptions as the American Cancer Association, right? I was going to say, and that's in the world. I mean, we recognize 501c6 membership organizations mm -hmm. are a significant part of the nonprofit world. They're talking about bringing impact through education, through services, through programming that really builds up our communities. And I think that's something we, we have to break some of these ideas. That, and I, I really appreciate your work on this because it, it gets us in the mindset we're not so beholden to what we think of as that standardized idea. We're not so beholden to the one-size-fits-all approach, and we can recognize, you know what? There's a lot of room in our box. There's a lot of room in our box to play around and have fun and, and turn it into something that we've never really thought of before. We've never given it the full emphasis before. Uh, this is amazing. David, I, I think your your work is, is fantastic, and um, I want to challenge anybody that's, that's listening uh, take a time to, to go go to Amazon.com, find the myths of creativity, go to David's website. David, um, you run a, a podcast with leaders uh, talking about leadership, innovation, and strategy. It's Leader Lab, but it's ldrlb.co. Go to that website and, and see some of the things that, that are happening here. David is, is in many ways, he's pushing forward for each of us 
to take hold of the opportunities that are in front of us. And I think it's just an awesome opportunity to be able to sit with you. David, I know we're friends, but uh, as we were talking before we even went on air, there's an awe that goes on in these kinds of conversations because I know as, as the, uh, the presenter here along with you, I'm still gaining so much. And this is part of that process. It's always being open to the learning environment and to be continual learners. Whether we're in a, a typical charity, we're in a, a 501c6 membership organization, we're in a religious organization or whatever the structure that we're in, there's so many other people that are out there that we can grasp uh, their experience and we can learn from it. So, um, David, wow, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me, yeah, for sure. And and by the way, so the, the leadership podcast, the Leader Lab, there, there are uh, for-profit leaders, non-profit leaders. There's, there's lessons for everything on that. And if you, uh, you know, I, I really, I mean, I would love for everybody to go on Amazon, buy the book in, in triplicate, right? But I, I get it, right? We're resource constrained, right? If you go to my site, davidberkus.com, there's a ton of resources that are totally free that are derived from the book, right? So if you want to give me a test before you decide to buy, go there, check out some of them, including like whole keynotes that I've given, but also worksheets, interviews with, with leaders. Actually, really cool interview with uh, Jennifer Anastasia one of the founders of FuseCore, which is a nonprofit that I serve on the advisory board of that's doing awesome stuff with a totally different model. So please check that out, davidberkus.com. And you can get to the podcast from that site too. So go to all of those. But Todd, thank, thank you for having me. Uh, one, it's really, it's always cool to reconnect with, with my grad school buddies. But two, like you and your whole organization, the magazine are doing awesome stuff. So I'm just, I'm excited that I could help in, in some small way. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, David. And thanks for, for pitching that out there. Uh, issue number two, December 1st, it's going to drop. David is one of our contributors in that. We're really excited about Busting Myths, the article that he has for us. Certainly want to encourage you to join us in our nonprofit chat. We'll continue the discussion from today. That's Thursday at 4 p.m. Join us on Twitter, hashtag nonprofit chat. It is a growing community. It's a very exciting community. We had Brian Soy with us uh, last week. We were talking about mission-driven nonprofits, and it's so exciting to see when we're able to engage and grow these discussions because it's not really just about the two of us sitting across from each other, virtually speaking, having a conversation. It's about how do we bring impact into our communities so that our organizations are impacting the world. We're, we're really excited again that you're here with us. If you have any questions or we can help you in any way, info at centervisionleadership.org. Always take a look at our archived events on the website. They're available here in the website that you see. Thanks for joining us at our Tuesday at 2 next week. We are really excited to have Scott Smith. Scott is going to be talking with us about leadership lessons from the front line. It's been a pleasure. I'm Todd Greer with Center Vision Leadership Foundation. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.